Perfect timing. I'm just about to plug her in. Oh, okay, good. Fire her up. And let there be light. <laughs> wow, that's festive. Uh, 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 uh. Huh? <laughs> All right. 79 more to go. I see my timing is perfect. I spent the day at the senior center crafting a one-of-a-kind ornament for our tree. Okay, what is this? It started out as a coffee mug. It became a reindeer. Hang it up, please. No, it doesn't look like a reindeer. It looks like something a reindeer left behind. Don't push me during the holidays. Doug, just do what he says. Carrie, this thing's a brick. It'll drag the whole tree down. Hang it up, or I'll bust this angel wide open. Hey, put that down. It's fragile. So help me, I'll do it. You do, and uh, Vixen here is coming right at your head. You want that? Oh, 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 stop it! Stop it! Where is your Christmas spirit? <laughs> Now, Dad, I will find a prime place for this on the tree, okay? Now, hand over the angel, nice and slow. This isn't over. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Uh, I got to say, it was wonderful to be in here this morning and to be able to hear uh, all of you singing uh, God's praises through the, the traditional Christmas carols. I love it. It was beautiful. You guys sound amazing. Um, and so thank you for, for singing. And what a blessing it is to, to have an uh, opportunity to gather together and to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So thank you again. Um, uh, we're just blessed to have you all with us here this morning. Mount Everest. Mount Everest is uh, something that has captured the imagination of humanity throughout the ages. Standing over 29,000 feet tall, it is the highest point on earth. And people have attempted to conquer it over and over and over again throughout history. It wasn't until 1953 when uh, Sir Edmund Hillary first conquered Mount Everest. And since that point, uh, over 3,000 people have climbed to the top of the summit of Mount Everest and stood at the top of the world. It is an amazing feat of humanity, that, uh, amazing experience for humanity over nature. Yet it also reveals so much about the nature of humanity. You see, one experience was in 2006, a man named David Sharp, a British mountaineer, uh, was climbing to the top, and he was headed towards the summit and on his way back down. He'd reached the top, and he was on his way back down when he was overcome by the altitude and by the cold. And so he sat down just a few hundred feet from the top of Mount Everest. He sat down in the snow, and over 40 people passed by him that day, and not one of them stopped to help. Imagine sitting there in the freezing cold, disoriented, blinded by snow blindness, and you can hear the footsteps coming behind you. You can hear voices of people talking behind you, and you reach out knowing that if it's not for someone to stop and help you, that you will certainly die. And then hearing those footsteps and those voices trail off as they walk right past you down the mountain. Forty people pass right by. 
And I'm sure they all had good reasons or excuses, like we all do in situations like this. I'm sure some of them said, hey, look, this trip cost me $60,000, and no way am I going to invest $60,000 and not make it to the top of Mount Everest. Maybe there were some who said, look, I don't know what this guy's problem is. It's probably his own fault. He didn't prepare, but I'm prepared. I'm going to the top, and I'm going back down. Maybe it was, it was the, the thought of going home after attempting Mount Everest and saying, look, I didn't make it to the top. I can't go home and say I didn't make it to the top. It's all about me. So David Sharp died there on the mountain in 2006. And this isn't an unusual thing. See, since 1953, there's been 219 people who have died on Mount Everest, many in the presence of other people who could have helped them but chose not to. Mount Everest is, is not, this is not just a Mount Everest thing. This is a humanity thing. It reveals the dark underside of our human nature. And when we think about Christmas, when we think about events like this, often we want to say, where was God in all of this? Where was God? If God were present with us, then things like this wouldn't happen. And we fail to recognize our own part in this, that it's often decisions that we've made or situations that we've created or chosen not to be a part of that lead to events like, like this. But we find ourselves asking, where is God in all of this? If God were here, then it wouldn't happen. But really, it's, it's not about God, it's about us and our own condition. And when we come to the Christmas time, we have a time to celebrate the reality that God is present. That God became man. He was born a little bitty baby and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and to walk on the earth and to experience all the things that we've experienced. God is present. In fact, the word Advent, it means coming. It's the time of celebrating the coming. And we've been thinking for these past four weeks as we reflect on joy, love, peace, and all the different things that go along with, with Christmas. And we've been reflecting on the reality of all that Christ has brought into our lives. We've been looking forward to this coming. And this morning we come to the end. We've been talking about the dysfunctional family Christmas. Now, how many of you can somewhat relate to that clip that we just saw a moment ago? Maybe that looks exactly like you putting up the Christmas tree at your house. Or maybe it's more like the Griswold family Christmas. Uh, you can relate to that sort of dysfunction at your family. And what we've seen these past few weeks is that even Jesus Christ himself, the Lamb of God, had some black sheep in his family tree. Like, there were people in Jesus' family tree that most of us, like when we're writing out our family tree, it's like, well, let's not add him. Let's put him on my wife's side of the family, right? Uh, we all have those people that we don't want to include. And we've, been, we've seen just this dysfunction that's taken place in Jesus' line, going all the way back to Genesis where we read the story of Judah and Tamar, and what a messy, awful situation that was. If you haven't read that story, go back and read it. We went on... Uh, a week later, and we studied Rahab. We saw some heroes in Jesus' line. We saw Rahab. She's there. She's a hero of the faith. Listed after Rahab is Boaz and Ruth, two major heroes of the faith. And then we go to King David, another hero. But as we saw last week with King David, not only was he a hero, he was also a scoundrel at times. And so David is a lot like me. David is a lot like you. He has moments of heroism where he's on fire and does the right thing and stands by God. And then he has moments where he's an utter and complete failure. 
I don't know about you, but I can relate to David a lot. And then we come to the end of Jesus' line. After David, we read about a number of kings that were born uh, following David until we get to verse 11. Things just kept going downhill. There were a couple kings that were good. There were a couple that were pretty bad. And things continue to go downhill. Until we read this in verse 11, it says, Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So Matthew chapter 1 verse 11, we read that things got so bad that the people were unable to follow God's laws and God's rules that the promise that he gave them back in Exodus and Deuteronomy that says, look, if you can't live by the rules that I'm giving you to live in the land, you're going to be taken out of it. And so that promise comes to fruition here. The people had fallen so far away from God, so unable to live by the guidelines that he had given, that God allows the Babylonians, this barbaric group of people, to come and conquer them and take them away. And then we come to the last person listed here in verse 16. It says, Jacob, father Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So out of this whole messy family, we see that God enters the picture. He sends someone to save this dysfunctional family. He's going to provide salvation for this dysfunctional family, but it's not just Jesus' family that needs saving. It's my family and your family. And guess what? I'm a part of that, and you're a part of that. We are all in need of this salvation. And so what we get to celebrate at Christmas, one of the big ideas that that I hope we come away with this morning is that God enters our messy lives to rescue us. God enters our messy lives to rescue us, to save us from the penalty of our sin. We see this in a number of ways. Before we look at the story of Jesus' birth, I just want us to take a minute and look at Jesus himself and look at the significance of his name. Look with me at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1. It says this, uh, excuse me, verse 21, let's start there. Verse 21 says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to call to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus is the Greek uh, version of the Hebrew name, Joshua. Joshua means the Lord saves. Jesus is a little bit more simple than that. Jesus simply means salvation. So when you think about the name Jesus, you ought to just think salvation. And it ought to be a reminder to you that the name Jesus, anytime you hear that name, that someone needs to be saved. When you hear the name Jesus, it ought to remind you that someone needs to be saved. The next thing it says there is that uh, he will save his people from their sins. His people. That means that Jesus isn't just saving at random. He didn't just come to save random people, but there is a certain group of people that he's come to save in the immediate context. In the immediate context, we know that it's talking about the Jewish people, that, that they were the ones that he came to redeem. But from the rest of the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament, we see that it's actually all people, the Gentiles, the Jews, that would make up the church We saw this a few weeks ago when we were going through the book of Ephesians, saw it very clearly, that Jew and Gentile have come together to form one body, the body of Christ. That's who Jesus came to save. This is a very personal thing. He came to save his people. It was very personal. He he knows them by name. He calls them not just into salvation, but into relationship. Relationship with him. Relationship with God. And then it says this, it says, he came to save them from what? From their 
Say it with me. From their sins. Came to save them from their sins, right? It didn't come to save them from them. Didn't come to save them from that, but from their sins. Now, when most of us think about salvation, we think, God, if you could just save me from them, my neighbors, the government, the people at work, and and we'd go through this bone and let me do my thing, then everything would be okay. God, save them, or save me from them, right? Or we look at some situation, maybe it's especially this time of year, our bank account, and we're like, God, if you could just save me from that, if you could just make it and redeem my bank account so that there's always money in there, so that I can just go swipe my card whenever I want, and I never have to worry about that, that number dipping too low or below zero, just redeem my bank account, that there's this never-ending source of money there. Or maybe you can redeem my body that, that for like the month and a half between uh, Thanksgiving and New Year's, I can eat whatever I want, I can stop exercising, and I don't have to worry about my weight or my waistline or my health. Like, God, just redeem my diet and my health. Would you save me from that? That's not what God came, came to save us from, is it? It says he came to save us from our sins. We have a dark side to every single one of us. And I think uh, the great theologian, Michael Jackson, captures this very well in his, when he wrote these words. He says, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. No message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. Think about it. If we all had good motives, good actions, righteous actions, our heart was in the right place, we wouldn't be facing the problems in the world that we do today, would we? No, we wouldn't. But that's not reality. The reality is, is that we are in need of a change of heart. And that's exactly what God sent his son Jesus to do to perform heart surgery on us, to give us a new heart, to remove the sin from our heart and replace it with his righteousness. That's what God has come to do, to save us from that sin. Another mountain climbing story, uh, there's a a rock face uh, called the Eiger. It's just called the Eiger. And it's a 6,000 foot on the north north face, which is the most sheer face. It's almost straight up, 6,000 feet straight up. And in 1957, here's a picture of it. In 1957, uh, there were two teams of climbers that were going to race to the top. There were two Germans and two Italians. Well, as they started their way up to the top, the two Germans got lost and were never heard from again. They're presumed dead. The two Italians made it within 1,000 feet of the summit of the Eiger. And they got stuck on a ledge. They couldn't go up and they couldn't go down. So they, they were able to make contact and to let people know that they were stuck and the Swiss Alpine team comes and they says, look, it's too dangerous. We're just going to have to leave them there. And we don't want anyone trying to rescue them. But there was another team of Swiss climbers who said, you know what, we can't just leave them there. We've got to do something. And so they climbed to the top of the other side of the Eiger and they said, look, uh, let, let's lower one of us down and then we'll bring the others back up. And so as we look at the pictures of Eiger, let's go back to the first picture. This is what it looked like most days. And then this is what it looked like on that day. A little bit different. A little bit different, isn't it? And so they lowered this man, Alfred Hellepart, down, and he recounts this uh, story of his time of being lowered down by the other climbers. And this is what he says. 
As I was lowered down the summit, my comrades on the top grew further and further distant until they disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt an indescribable aloneness. Then, for the first time, I peered down the abyss of the north face of the Eiger. The terror of the sight robbed me of breath. The brooding blackness of the face falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me made me look with awful longing to the thin cable disappearing about me in the mist. I was a tiny human being dangling in the space between heaven and hell. The sole relief from my terror was my mission to save the climbers below. Alfred Hellepart says that the only relief, the only thing that allowed him to keep his sanity as he was dangling between heaven and hell on that thin little wire was a noble mission. The mission that he had been called to. When we think about Jesus, this is the same thing that God has done for us. In the same way, God sent Jesus Christ dangling him between heaven and hell and a place called earth to be our rescuer. He lowered himself down to the earth so that he could be our rescuer. Now when you think about a rescue, what do you have to do when someone comes to rescue you? You have to receive the rescue. That's exactly right. You have to reach out and take their hand and rely on the rescuer to lead you out. You have to rely on the strength of the rescuer to be the one to pull you up. And that's exactly what God asks us to do in his son, Jesus Christ is to rely on his strength, to rely on his sacrifice. Now there are some here that aren't willing to accept that. Some of us here are, are, it seems too difficult, or it just seems, uh, maybe for some it seems too easy. But for whatever reason, there are some who just struggle with this idea of relying on Jesus Christ alone. And some of us here want to fake it. We just want to fake it. We want to pretend like our life is okay. We want to pretend like everything's all right because deep down we feel like if people knew who I was, then they wouldn't like me. If God knew who I really was, then he wouldn't accept me. And so we fake it. Others try to fix it. You spend your whole life thinking about how can I make up for all the bad things that I've done? What good things can I continue to do to make up for the bad things? But it's never enough. Others just fib it. They look at things that are ugly and call it beautiful. They do actions that are unjust and call them just. Find ways to justify them. They bring things into their lives that they know are broken and they try to call them wholesome. Jesus has come to rescue us. We must receive that rescue. We must simply trust in him and in him alone. This is the second name that Jesus has given in verse 23. We see, see the virgin will be pregnant, become pregnant and be with child and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel. You see, Jesus experienced everything that we experienced. Jesus walked the earth just like we did. He knows what it's like to be a baby boy. He knows what it's like to be a child. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like to be an adult. He was born into a working class family. There was no palace. There was nothing for him. He knows what it's like to struggle day to day. Most of his adult life he spent traveling, smelling his own sweat, tasting his own tears. He knows what it's like to have friends. And he knows what it's like to be betrayed by those friends. 
He knows what it's like to, to experience a feast as he goes to Matthew's house or as he feeds the 5,000. He knows what it's like to be full. Yet he also knows what it's like to be hungry. Everything that we've experienced, he's experienced. And ultimately, after experiencing all the same things that we've experienced, he's laid down his life as a sacrifice for you and me. Laid down his life. And we think about this name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel just means God with us, or more literally, it means the with us God. It means the with us God. So God has come down and given himself through Jesus Christ to be with us, to rescue us from all the things that we have. We talked about reaching out to to receive that rescue. And I got to say, it brings me great joy and great peace and makes me experience God's love to the fullest when I think about Emmanuel, God with us, the with us God, that everything that I've been through, he has experienced and he is with me. The times when I face temptation and I fail, he is with me, and he is reaching out his hand, providing that rescue. He has already, for me in my life, he's provided that rescue when I was six years old and I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And there are some of you here this morning, maybe you're trying to fix it, maybe you're trying to fake it, maybe you're fibbing it, But there are some of you here this morning who have not done that. You've not reached out and received that rescue. What better time than Christmas as we think about Jesus Christ, salvation, Emmanuel, the with us God. What better time to receive that rescue than today? In fact, I I just want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ and you recognize that I am in need of a rescue and I can't rescue myself, I need to be relying on Jesus Christ. Lord, I just want to reach out and receive your rescue. If that's you this morning, let's all just bow our heads right now. I'd encourage you, just pray with me. Knowing that it's not this prayer that saves you, it's your faith in Jesus Christ that has saved you. But if that's you, just pray this with me right now. God, I know that I'm a sinner in need of rescue. And I know that there's nothing that I can do to save myself. But that you have sent your son, Jesus, salvation, Emmanuel, the with us God. You've come down as Jesus Christ to be with us and to take our sin upon yourself and to die on the cross in our place. And I'm putting my trust in Jesus as my Savior. Thank you, Father, for rescuing me. In Jesus' name, amen. If this morning, for the very first time, you prayed that prayer after service, I'll be standing in the back. Our elders will be around. Find one of us. Let us know. We'd love to celebrate with you. We'd love to encourage you. And if you still have questions, maybe you're like, whoa, 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 you're, you're jumping the gun here. I still have, like, these ten questions that I need answered. Come talk to me also. I'd love to sit down with you, help answer your questions, and talk to you more about what it looks like and what it means to receive that rescue that Jesus Christ provides. So if you've just put your trust in Jesus Christ, you may be asking, well, now what? Now what do I do? Or maybe you trusted Christ a long time ago. Now what do I do? What what does this life now mean for me? Well, let's look at the rest of the story of Jesus' birth. As we look at the story of Mary and Joseph... We're going to see what God's plan is for us. Let's start in, in verse, 20, uh, verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. 
after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you and to me in this day and age that a woman would be pregnant before she's married, but trust me, in this day uh, of Mary and Joseph, this was a big deal. This was a very big deal. Now, when it says they were engaged, it's a little bit different than Joseph just slipping a ring on her finger and she goes out and buys 50 bridal magazines and starts planning, like, dresses and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, there, there was no cake tasting, anything like that. The way their engagement would work is that they would, the parents would arrange the marriage, and when the couple became of age, they would go through a formal engagement. It would last about a year. And during this time, the husband would live with his family, and the wife would live with her family. They would live separately. And then eventually there would be a huge wedding feast and a huge banquet where they would be joined together, and they would consummate their marriage. So what we learn from this passage is that that hasn't happened yet. They're still living apart. Okay? And Mary is found to be pregnant. And it says, by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the context of the Christmas story, like we read this and we think about the books that we read to our kids where everybody has a little halo over their head, uh, we think we've kind of sanitized this story, but put yourself in her dad's shoes. Dads, imagine your daughter comes to you and says, hey dad, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it was the Holy Spirit. You're going to be like, yeah, right, what's his name? Give me the address. I'll go get the shotgun. Uh, you know, or if you're engaged, if you're Joseph and you, you, you get word that Mary is pregnant and you know that you have lived a, a wholesome life with her, you have not been with her, and that this can't be your baby, you're going to be saying, well, who is it? How, how could this happen? That's a pretty difficult situation to be in. Let's go on and continue reading. Verse 27, it says, So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So what's going on here is that because this formal engagement was, was, so, uh, it was such a formal thing, that the only way to break off an engagement was to actually go through essentially a divorce procedure. It had to be a very public, uh, it was a very... Um, formal process to break off this marriage. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, that that term righteous man means that he's trying to do what the Old Testament law says to do. He's trying to do what God's word says to do. He's always trying to do the right thing. This is a good man, a righteous man. And and he is thinking about this, that this is going to follow him for the rest of his life. This is going to follow him for the rest of his life. Now for us today, being righteous isn't such a big deal, is it? We like to live in the now. We like to do things that make us feel good. We like to do the things that we're going to commit to whatever feels good right now. And righteousness is not as big of a deal as it, is, as it was then. But let me tell you, this was a big deal for them. It was going to follow him for the rest of his life. If he stays with Mary, then people are going to wonder, was that Joseph's baby? Did, did he have that baby before they were married? And so he's got two options. One is to divorce her publicly. That means taking her before the leadership of the town and saying, this woman is a harlot. She's pregnant. The baby is not mine. I've not been with her. I'm a righteous man. You know me. And he can embarrass Mary in front of the entire town. And that will follow her for the rest of her life. 
The other option is that he can go and divorce her secretly, that, that he's not going to bring her in front of everybody and make a big spectacle out of it. Divorce her secretly, and, uh, and then her family would just ship her off across the sea to her cousin's house, and she'll have the baby and then come back and then just deal with all the rumors. And he says Joseph is a righteous man, so either way, whether he divorces her publicly or in private, he is in the right. He's the righteous one. Right? He comes across as everyone will know that this wasn't Joseph's doing. But there's another option that Joseph hasn't considered. Look with me in the next verse, 20, verse 20. After he considered these things, now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, if I had found out that my fiancé was pregnant and I knew it wasn't mine, considering uh, these options is probably a very weak term. Like, he's probably kicking the couch and the cat and calling his friends like, how could she do this to me? He's, he's you know, probably throwing things around his little room there, uh, considering is a pretty weak word for what I think is going on here. But it says, after considering these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet by the Lord. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So Joseph got up from sleeping. He did as the Lord, Lord's angel had commanded, and he married her. But he did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. What we see here is that God calls Joseph to involve his righteous reputation in this societal mess that Mary is in. Because let's face it, if Joseph enters into this, there's going to be questions about his integrity. There's going to be questions about his, his righteousness. But God says, Joseph, I need you to enter into this mess and to lift Mary up. I need you, and essentially he says, I need you to, to act as her rescuer in this situation. And so here's the principle that we take away from this. Those of us who've been rescued by Jesus Christ, God calls us to enter into other people's messy lives to lift them up. God calls us to enter the messy lives of others so that we can lift them up or to rescue them by bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. That's our calling. That's our calling, and I think there are so many of us who, who don't get that. We don't understand it, and we struggle with this. But what we see here is that there's a new kind of righteousness that's being defined. There's a new kind of righteousness, and it's this, that true righteousness is expressed in entering in to lift people out. Entering in to lift people out. It's not keeping your, your reputation unsoiled or standing apart or looking in on people who have sin and condemning their sin. That's not righteousness. That may be what we think of righteousness, but that is not how God defines it. God says, in this case, Joseph, your righteousness is to enter in with Mary and to lift her up. To lift her up. Be her rescuer. Become personally involved, just like I got personally involved through my son, Jesus Christ. Um, about a year and a half ago, there was a young man that m my wife and I came into contact with through some of uh, the people who helped us plant this church. And he was struggling. He'd been in prison. 
Um, he'd, he'd been struggling with some things, and he needed a car. Uh, we had sold a house, and we were getting a, a nice tax return, and uh, we had a little bit of extra money. And so we told him, hey, look, as soon as we get our, our tax return, we want to give that money to you so that you can buy a car and you can get a job and you can get your life on the right track. He was trying so hard. He couldn't get a job until he had a car. And I remember one day we were having a conversation with him, and he just said, look, um, people have told me that they're going to help me before, and they never do, so I'll believe it when I see it. But let me ask you, why? Why me? Why would you even bother? You don't know me. Uh, you don't owe me anything. Why would you help me? And I thought back to all the different times in my life as a college student, as a seminary student, that I was driving a 1995 Ford Exploder, that's what I call it, uh, and it had, by the time we sold it, it had 265,000 miles on it. And I can remember being in college and the transmission went out and there was a little uh, uh, salvage yard that I used to take it to because I wasn't going to put new parts in the Exploder just to have them explode again. So uh, I would take it to this salvage yard and the man there was always so nice to me. He put a brand new transmission in there at almost no cost. And he'd helped me out. And there were so many others who'd come along at different times in my life when I was struggling with transportation or with money and they had helped me out. And my only thought was, was I'm helping you because others have helped me. What I was doing was not noble, it was normal. I mean, isn't it normal that when someone helps you that you want to turn around and help someone else? If that's the case, this is what I don't understand. If, if that's the case, it's something like money or something else that when someone helps us, we want to turn around and help someone else, then how is it that the church of Jesus Christ has a reputation for being judgmental? How? Have you forgotten where you came from, sinners? I know I haven't, sinner. If it were not for the grace of Jesus Christ, I would be traveling in the left-hand lane doing 90 miles per hour on the highway to hell. I can guarantee you that. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, he has saved me. How then can I turn around and look at someone else's sin and point the finger in condemnation or be afraid to interact with them because it might soil my reputation? God calls us because we have been saved by Jesus Christ, our rescuer, who was dangled between heaven and hell and came down and got involved in our messy situations. God then calls us to enter into the messy situation of other people's lives, even if it means soiling our reputation a little bit so that we can lift them up. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, uh, The Reasons for God, says this, he says that all life-changing love is substitutional sacrifice. Joseph is sacrificing his reputation for Mary. He's making a sacrifice. He's making a sacrifice, substitutional sacrifice. And Tim Keller goes on and explains it like this. He says, imagine you come into contact with a man who is innocent, but who is being hunted down by secret agents or by the government or some other powerful group. He reaches out to you for help. If you don't help him, he will probably die. But if you do ally with him, uh, but if you do ally with him, you who were perfectly safe and secure will be in mortal danger. This is the stuff that TV shows and movies are made of. Again, it's him or you. He will experience increased safety and security through your involvement. 
but only because you are willing to enter into his insecurity and vulnerability. That is exactly what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. He has entered into our insecurity and invulnerability, taking on the form of a human being, taking on our sin to die in our place. And he calls us to do the same, to take on the vulnerability of those who are hurting and hopeless and helpless around us and to lift them up, to bring them, not not rescue them ourselves, but to bring them to the true rescuer, Jesus Christ. We can't be afraid. We can't be afraid about what are people going to say if they see me with, what are people going to say if they see me at this person's house? Now think about Jesus going to Matthew's house, the tax collector. I don't think it ever crossed his mind, what are people going to say? He knew what people were going to say, and he went anyways. And he lifted Matthew up out of that situation. God has blessed us so greatly through his son, Jesus Christ. And we have to ask ourselves, is it possible? Is it possible for God to change someone's life without taking on some of their vulnerability? And the answer is no. In order to change our life, he had to take on some of our own vulnerability, and he did that through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what makes Christmas so special. See, there's no other religion that teaches that God became man and put himself on the earth and bore our sin and our pain and our suffering for himself. No other religion teaches that. And this is what makes Christmas so special because Christmas is the time that we celebrate that salvation. We celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. God has come. He has rescued. You must pass it on. God has come. Let me ask you this morning, if if you still have not received that rescue, I would love to have a conversation with you about that. And if you have received that rescue, are you walking by people? Are you passing by people like David was passed by? On Mount Everest, who in your life are you walking by saying, not me, I'm not going to take the time to help? Would you take, take the righteous risk of entering into their messy lives to lift them up and bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ? What better time to do that than Christmas? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you did send your son Jesus Christ into this world to rescue us from our sin. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to pass that rescue on to others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as we head into our time of two and take two, I just want to encourage you, if you have not re- received that rescue of Jesus Christ, would you just write some things down about maybe, like, why? Like, here's, as I, as I think through the, the one thing that I'm taking away from this morning, here's why. Here's what I'm struggling with. And then pray about that this week. Write down a little action item, I will, and then pray about it. If you have received that rescue, I I hope that you will see that Jesus Christ is the salvation of not just his dysfunctional family, but your dysfunctional family, your dysfunctional neighbors, your dysfunctional coworkers, and even your dysfunctional self. I pray that you would be reminded of that, and that God would bring to mind a couple names of, of messy people that you know, that perhaps he's calling you to enter their lives. Perhaps he's calling you to enter into that messy situation 
and put your own reputation at risk in order to lift them up by introducing them to Jesus Christ.